Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome again to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks for joining me. I have a great guest today who is not only a close friend of mine, but somebody who's capable of talking about pop culture, politics, philosophy, storytelling, theology, you name it. And he never lacks for insights into what's going on in the culture. So don't miss our conversation coming up. But first, I want to set the scene a little bit in terms of the pernicious ideology of wokeness and its effect on storytelling in the culture. We all recognize that wokeness, or what is essentially cultural Marxism, is a divisive, destructive force that's infected every aspect of society, from education to corporate culture to sports to politics. And I want to address a couple of examples of ways in which wokeness continues to poison the field of entertainment, which is not just a frivolous part of our lives, but it's arguably a very substantial part of our contemporary cultural worldview. First, my friend John Nolte over at Breitbart News recently wrote a piece called Stephen King's New Novel is Full of Bigotry and COVID Misinformation, in which he laments that King, who was once America's storyteller with a string of great tales like Carrie, The Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, and Misery, but today King is just an aging palace guard for the establishment. Nolte goes on to say that King's latest novel, Holly, is burdened with overt, woke messaging that includes villains who are predictably racist, anti-vaccine, old, and white, while the protagonists of the book are all women, minorities, homosexuals, or some combination of the three. Nolte calls Stephen King's treatment of Christians beyond scurrilous in that there is a vegan black lesbian character who is victimized by her Christian family on religious grounds for not eating meat. She is gang-raped by several members of the family's church, and when she aborts the resulting baby, her family disowns her. Then Stephen King goes on, also predictably, to claim that COVID nursing home deaths were all because an orderly refused to get an mRNA vaccine because it was developed using cells from aborted fetuses. My friend Nolte notes that King fails to mention the truth about COVID, which is that Democrat governors committed murder on an industrial scale by forcing COVID patients into nursing homes. John Nolte concludes by stating that Stephen King has not only become a, quote, a bigot and an uptight square who looks like everyone's lesbian aunt, but he's also become a propaganda tool for the establishment, unquote. Another instance that I want to mention of storytelling being ruined by wokeness has to do with the new James Bond novel called On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, this is not a new novel from Bond creator Ian Fleming, of course, who passed away decades ago. There have been several novelists since Fleming who have been authorized by the Bond estate to carry on with new James Bond adventures, including the latest author, Charlie Higson. The new Bond novel is causing a bit of a stir because Higson has apparently taken 007 in a ludicrously woke direction. Bond is now a walking parody of progressive pieties with open disdain for what he calls the far right, by which he means anyone to the right of Tony Blair. Neil Gooch over at The Spectator 
has a scorching takedown of the novel. And I'm going to read some selections from Gooch's piece to give you an idea of just how bad the book is. In his article, Meet the Awful New Progressive James Bond, Gooch writes that Higson's contribution to the Bond mythology is outstandingly terrible. It makes Dan Brown look like a master of nuance, understatement, and subtle characterization. Gooch adds that, quote, it is the portrayal of its villains where the book becomes truly farcically bad. The men drawn to the principal villain's dastardly scheme are preposterous caricatures of the kind of people whom author Higson dislikes. In other words, people who have any kind of reservations at all about any aspect of progressive politics. None of them is a genuine character. Instead, they are mere empty vessels onto which Higson projects his bizarre fantasies about the motivations and beliefs of conservatives. People who are skeptical about mass immigration or transgenderism or the erosion of free speech are simply itching to engage in mass terror attacks in the heart of London, apparently. Unquote. Neil Gooch concludes in his article, quote, On His Majesty's Secret Service is clearly a work of propaganda. I admit to being somewhat surprised by quite how leaden and didactic this book was. Are there no editors left? I asked myself as I waded through the underpowered, hectoring prose. Perhaps, however, that is a function of how hegemonic Higson's views are among the creative classes. After all, goldfish do not know they are wet, and people who conform instinctively and wholeheartedly to contemporary pieties about borders and gender and free speech and identity find it very difficult to understand the extent of their epistemic bubbles. We seem to be entering an age when didactic pro-establishment propaganda with little merit is not only everywhere, but goes unremarked and uncriticized because the people with cultural power generally agree with each other about almost every issue of importance. There is less intellectual diversity in our creative classes, less genuine openness to opposing ideas than there has been for well over a century, unquote. Again, that was Neil Gooch over at The Spectator writing about the new Bond novel, and I could share excerpts from a couple of other articles I came across that examine the novel in more detail, but I don't want to get too bogged down in it, and I'm eager to get on to our guest. Suffice it to say that what should have been a thrilling new Bond adventure has been reduced by woke storytelling to boring, progressive propaganda. Now, what's the big deal, you might be asking? So what if one of America's major storytellers and one of our culture's most recognizable and influential heroes have gone woke? Why should anyone care? Well, the answer is that humans are storytelling animals, and storytelling, more than any other cultural expression, is how we define ourselves as individuals, as a community, as a culture. Great storytelling that engages you and moves you and resonates with you shapes the way we view ourselves and our ideals and our values and guides us toward the true, the good, and the beautiful. It can even inspire us to take right action in our own lives. Storytelling has great power. But wokeness, or any heavy-handed politicization of storytelling, fails as storytelling because it serves the purpose of taking you out of the story, of breaking your willing suspension of disbelief. It functions only as propaganda. Now, propaganda, of course, can have a very powerful impact, too, but it's bad storytelling. And when storytellers like Stephen King or the writers authorized to carry on the James Bond legacy resort to pushing propaganda, then they are failing us. 
and failing to create anything of value for our culture. And on that note, stay tuned for my guest coming up next because we're going to dive deeper into this topic, and you won't want to miss my friend's insights on this. In the interim, during the upcoming rockin' musical interlude, don't forget to subscribe to the Right Take podcast so you don't miss any of the great conversations that we have been having here and will continue to have in the future. I have a lot of amazing guests lined up for future episodes. Don't touch that dial. My guest today at the Right Take podcast is Brian Godawa award-winning screenwriter and filmmaker, best known for the great movie To End All Wars with Kiefer Sutherland, and perhaps also for last year's controversial hit called My Son Hunter, about Joe Biden's corrupt, profligate son and the laptop from hell. He's also a lecturer and a scholar and author of nonfiction. His book Hollywood Worldviews, Watching Films with Wisdom and Discernment, is used as a textbook in schools around the country, and I highly recommend it. He can speak about storytelling more insightfully than anybody I know. Brian is also a best-selling author of biblical novels, including his Chronicles series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers, and Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And he has a brand new novel out called Cruel Logic, which is not part of that series. In fact, it's part of a brand new series of theological thrillers, which we will talk about further. And I'm honored to say he's been a close friend of mine for many years. Brian was one of my very first guests at the Right Take podcast. In fact, it was one year ago, almost to the day that I had him on last. Brian Gadawa, welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's an honor. It was an honor to be your first guest. And uh, and uh, I love the show. So thanks. Uh, you know, before we get started, I noticed over the weekend that Fox News Digital or Fox News Online, whatever it calls itself, uh, did a profile of you and a couple of other people about how faith how your your Christian faith kind of informs and guides your work. So congratulations on that. You want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, thanks. You know, it was just so yeah, it was an interesting little quick thing on the spot that's like my my publicist contacted me and said, Hey, can you write this stuff out? They're looking for this. And, you know, and I'm like, okay. And uh I didn't, you know, I figured they were sending it out to a bunch of different people. And uh so it was, yeah, it was an honor to be picked. But you know, the the premise of it was, you know, how do how do you live out your faith and your work and such? And as a writer, you know, my main, you know, my my main point that I just brought, I was just a brief, very very brief couple paragraphs, and it was just that it not just I addressed not merely the relationships, of course, that we have, but the work itself. I I, I wanted to address the work itself and and how I how I work that out. You know, so I, I said things like. um, you know, like uh, I, I seek to obey God in, in what I do. So for instance, I don't screw people because that's business, even though a lot of people do that. And I've been screwed by conservatives and Christians and, um, you know, but I don't do that because I don't, I don't want to live my life that way, you know, but also things like do not lie, don't plagiarize, don't, you know, give credit to people when you, where credit's due, um, you know, and don't lie just to support your point. Thou shall not lie, right? And, and uh, things like that, that just were sort of addressing a few of the Ten Commandments and how they apply to living out your work in a way that a lot of people today don't really care for. You know, I mean, people... People are ide- often ideologically driven, especially journalists, right, where it's all about the narrative, not about the facts. Um, those kinds of things are really violations of God's commands, you know, and I, I can't live that way. So, 
yeah, that was, it was, it was fun to sort of sit down and, you know, jot those things down, but, um, it was great. Yeah. One of my conservative Hollywood friends, in fact, he's a mutual friend of yours and mine, um, told me once that his agent said to him, keep this in mind all the time, screw everybody, but you. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that is, uh, that's some pretty intense, uh, you know, professional advice to be giving. Uh, but I think it says a lot about Hollywood. Uh, anyway, in my Brian, in my in my opening remarks for this episode, I commented about some examples in which wokeness is ruining storytelling with its really heavy-handed political messaging. For example, uh, the latest James Bond novel is is really just sort of so ridiculously political that it's kind of like a parody of wokeness. You want to give your you want to give your take on the problem with that kind of overt political messaging and not just the messaging, but even the the woke casting in today's Hollywood, which is so clearly pushing kind of an agenda of forced diversity and equity. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly enough, it's one of the reasons why I had to leave, um, at least leave, leave uh, Los Angeles and moved out to Texas because I realized that um, although I had always sort of been in the independent side of movie making, we could fly under the radar, um, you know, do our good movies, but have our subtle, you know, um, different perspective than, you know, Hollywood was captured, has been captured by the left for decades. And, and so, you know, just trying to have a different viewpoint in our storytelling, um, get under the radar. But now I realized, you know, when, when they, when they made that claim for the, uh, the Academy Awards now that no movies would be accepted unless they had these certain quotients and diversity and equity and all this kind of stuff, um, having completely nothing to do with the actual storytelling. Um, but yeah, deeply political. And, you know, I don't really care about the Oscars, but, and I haven't for a decade, but, but that still, they, that symbolizes what's going on in the industry. And I, and I would hear executives literally saying, you know, yeah, we, we're looking to, to, you know, writers as, as well as all other positions We're we're not looking for white males and, and, uh, certainly not, uh, older white males, right? Because they're the enemy. And when I saw that was happening, I knew, okay, that was just, Hollywood is dead, you know, because there's now no longer any chance for people who are um, truly conservative or even Christian. There's not really any room anymore to even fly in under the radar because they're hunting us down. And a lot of people are have done, followed suit and, and have left as well. Um, doesn't mean we're not making movies, of course, because I did make My Son Hunter. But, um, but yeah, just sort of like not able to really work within that system anymore. And it's, it's really sad and pathetic too, because uh, even, you know, normal people watching movies are complaining about just the wokeness and how it, it's really just bad storytelling. It's not, you know, like, nor, you know, the normal viewer probably doesn't, maybe they've heard the word woke, but they don't really know what it means, that it actually means a a neo-Marxist worldview that sees the world as two people, two reduced to two kinds of people, oppressed and oppressor. And the oppressor is the white male heterosexual Christian and the oppressed are all peoples of color and women and gays and all that. And so we are, you know, these men are the enemy and all this kind of stuff. And they don't realize that the, the depth of the philosophy of it, but they can watch these things and they can say, you know, why are they forcing all action movies now to be led by women? You know, with a few exceptions, obviously, uh, you know, uh, 
Tom Cruise, you know, they're going to still get their movies, but all other action movies, other than the big superstars guys, uh, they're all led by women, you know, women, Navy SEALs, women, uh, commanders, women, you know, and it's just, I don't even watch them anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the action movies anymore because they're they're It's just ridiculous. It's not, I, I used to love an occasional movie where you have like some Charlie's Theron is an assassin, you know, and it's just kind of like, it's a joke. But it's a fun joke and we're in on it and we enjoy it, right? But now it's not a joke. They're taking it seriously as if all these, you know, uh, 115 pound women can, can kick the butts of 250 or 225 pound men. You know, um, it, it's just beyond ridiculous and it's, it's just not interesting. But also the stories themselves are then uh, suffering because of it. And I think people are noting this and, uh, you know, isn't the, um, you know, the, I guess we'll see snow, you know, obviously Barbie, uh, as horribly woke as it was, it did do huge numbers, but I think that was riding on the coattails of decades of a successful toy product. People weren't ready for it or some people just, you know, didn't, didn't care or whatever, but we'll see what happens with the new snow white where it's been trumpeted as being, you know, no, no more no more dwarves, uh, you know, no more marginalized people. And the, uh, Snow White's not going to be a white woman and she's not going to be saved by the prince. And so these kinds of components where it's, you cannot do certain things because it violates our leftist, uh, feminist or, uh, you know, ideological concerns. Um, not only, not only is it like you're watching a leftist sermon, a religious sermon you're getting preached to, you know, but it, it does, it's, it's not the values of people, you know, I mean, women do want to be rescued by a man. Women do want to be taken care of by men. Men want to rescue, pr- provide, protect, and care for women. And, um, you know, but that of course is all automatically now patriarchal fascism and, and, uh, in, in, in that world. Right. So, I, I yeah I so I think it's a combination of the values of the viewers they they're not interested in it but also it's just not good storytelling when you're forcing people don't like to be preached at right we've heard this you know for forever like for Christian movies are so bad because they're preaching at you aside from the fact that they have bad acting and bad writing but they're preaching at you and it's like well now we should have a new genre category of preachy atheistic movies or preachy woke movies it's like it, it's the same thing as bad Christian movies. So, you know, we, we should throw that category out there and, and, and start calling these things what they are. But yeah, yeah, it's sad. And, um, but interestingly, the same, it's, it's everywhere. All the institutional, um, uh, the commanding heights of all the institutions are captured by this ideology in the book publishing world. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an author. And uh, I'm I have my own publishing company because they wouldn't take my books. You know the uh, what I wrote was just wasn't acceptable at the time by Christians. Actually, Um, I I tend to write you know Bible stories and stuff. Although this new cruel logic is not. But uh, what I'm getting at is um, traditional publishing houses now also are. It's the same way. They're only looking for things like we only want LGBTQ affirming books and stories and authors, literally. And, um, that's what they're, they're focusing on. So they're literally suppressing anyone, anything of quality done by white people. And, you know, but if white people are the majority, then you're going to be cutting out a lot of good stuff. And it's not to say that there isn't any good stuff. Obviously there's 
there's great stuff written by minorities of all kinds. But when you're in, inversing like that and you're deliberately acting in a racist manner, you're suppressing someone's work because of the color of their skin in the name of equity, you know, you're obviously you're you are degrading the quality and the excellence of that field. And aren't we seeing the effect of that right now? You know? Yeah. And when you push the politics to the front or an agenda or a worldview right to the front of the story, it really just destroys what they call the willing suspension of disbelief. And that that is death to a story. You know, that takes the audience right out of the story and makes them conscious of something else instead of being deeply immersed in uh, in in the tale itself. Conservatives aren't immune themselves to putting politics at the uh, expense of storytelling. I mean, it's kind of understandable. I think the conservative creators want to connect with this huge underserved conservative audience that, out there that's starved, starved for entertainment that doesn't insult them or sucker punch them with uh, progressive politics. But overall, you know, for any storyteller, it's not a good idea to set out to write a quote-unquote conservative movie, uh, unquote, that preaches to the choir. Um, what, do, what do you think about yeah. that? Well, yeah. So, well, this is the thing, you know, great story. Here's the problem is that there is a wide berth of, of kinds of storytelling, you know, and there are, there are some stories that are more propagandistic oriented. Uh, propaganda is not inherently bad. It, it can be bad if it's excessive or if it's promoting falsehood. But I have to admit that sometimes propaganda can be good. I won't deny that. You know, I would argue some people would disagree, but I think James um, Cameron is a good example of this, where he's a fantastic storyteller. And, you know, his stories of like Avatar and all, they're all like massively propaganda for, for his earth worship. But they're still great storytelling because he knows how to tell a story. But the, here's the difference is um, he if you if you embody your worldview within the storytelling and the choices of the characters in a believable, realistic way, because there are many people who believe in different ways and make different choices. And if you tell that story and seek to at least show uh, somewhat of an honest um, or fair portrayal of opposing ideas, opposing views, opposing characters, right? The essence of drama is conflict, right? But what is conflict? Conflict is opposing views in the story. Different people have different uh, you know, beliefs about the way the world should be, and, and the drama of the story is what works that out, right? And so um, if you if every story does have a viewpoint, so that's there's nothing wrong with having a political viewpoint. And actually, I think a political movie can be be worthy and, and if it's done well done and fair fairly. Now, sadly, you know, you see these Hollywood political movies. You know, whether it's the Comey rule or the one about Sarah Palin, you know, the game changer, you know, uh, they're always they always demonize, you know, Republicans and it's they're foolish and they're really dumb and uninteresting because they don't treat their opponents with fairness. And and those who are on that side can see that and go, this isn't what what we're like. So you don't even know who we are. But if you're honest enough to say, well, I want to portray them in the best light possible, even though I believe they're wrong, right? Um, that's what, that's where you get a good story that's honest and, and it doesn't come up with the, the propaganda absolutes. So when, for instance, when we did My Son Hunter, right? My Son Hunter is a political satire, which is mocking and having fun uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, the one story nobody in Hollywood would ever tell. And um, so we made it outside the system, of course. But 
But when we went about writing that, I was I, like my interest in it wasn't merely the political side of it. I, in fact, I wasn't interested in doing a political movie. What intrigued me was the relationship between Hunter and his father and his uh, deceased brother, Bo. It actually was sort of like the two sons and the father was a very classical uh, tragedy of dysfunction that a lot of families have. But in this case, it's more like a mafiosa situation, you know, uh, kind of like the Godfather in politics. But it was really intriguing because, yeah, you got to have the sex and drugs and rock and roll of Hunter Biden's life in the story. That's the surface elements that people are drawn to in watching movies. But, um, and, and even the political stuff, there was so much political corruption. But to me, it, it, the context of it was that relationship with fa- the father-son relationship. And so, um, and the producers and I both, when, when I was writing it, we both agreed we do not want to demonize Hunter. And sure enough, the left all, you know, the left, you know, universally hated the movie, but some of them even admitted that, wow, they they actually made Hunter quite empathetic. And some of them, did, some of them couldn't understand that. They're like, they must have accidentally made Hunter empathetic. They didn't even realize it because they don't know theirs. If they were to tell a story about Republicans, they would demonize. So they can't even understand someone actually not demonizing their political opponents. That's how blind and deluded and, and yeah, ideologically uh, deluded a lot of storytellers in Hollywood and, and in the media, right? So uh, that to me meant we were successful because it's like we did want to be empathetic about him and and display the tragedy of Hunter Biden, but yet still obviously reveal the crimes that the Biden family have been engaged in. And of course, now everything that's coming out now is actually in the movie because this information has been around for for years. You know, the emails that are now coming out and indicting him about all these connections, there's maybe a few that that are new, but most all these connections to China and and all that stuff, you know, we're not even talking about the gun charges or or the prostitution. That's that's just side fodder. But all these political connections to China and to nuclear powers and stuff, it's like that's already been around. It's just that it was suppressed by the media, right? So yeah, we have that in the story. But even then, the, what's important about what's going on is not the politics of it, but it's the morality of what's going on within that family. So a good story, even if it deals with politics, is going to have the concern of the deeper human nature and morality, not the surface you know, politics and demonizing your opponents. Can you think, apart from My Son Hunter, can you think of a movie or a series that you've seen lately, whether it's new or not, uh, that you think strikes just the right balance of story and message that maybe you could recommend to, uh, quote unquote, conservative viewers? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, Give me a second, because I do try to I try to keep a list because, uh, you know, it's there's well, there. Okay, here's the thing. As as deeply corrupted and as far gone as Hollywood is, there's still a lot of good there and there's still a lot of good people and they, they do somehow get through sometimes. So I'm not going to deny that that does, that does occur, but you know, in terms of, um, messaging and stuff like that, um, you know, it tends to be more like worldview stuff, but, uh, let's say, okay, let's say things like, um, like pro-life, you know, like I'm pro-life and, and any any movie that's going to have that pro life element to it, in other words, supporting life, 
is going to be great. But, um, but even then, again, you, you know, you can't be loud and proud about it. So you have to embody it within the story. And so in a way, movies like popular movies like Arrival, which is now available on Netflix, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a, a secondary story about this woman and knowing the future of a, of a child that she's going to have and yet still choosing to have that child. You know, there's just the, the act of choosing a child despite all the arguments against it, which is what our society does promote. To me, that's a simple choice, a moral choice that supports life. You can see how that's a story element though too, right? Because it wrestles with the humanity and the person choosing. Um, a Quiet Place is a is another movie. It's a horror movie, you know, with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt and and it's a post-apocalyptic world. And and the whole idea there is with all this danger and evil, it's it supports the benefits and the the blessing of having a family and uniting together with families. And you know. Just that itself, just promoting family connectedness, you know, I think is a is 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 the deepest way of of touching touching us on that level. But in terms of strictly sort of stronger, explicit messaging, you know, um, I would recommend the death of Stalin. I just recently saw that again. It's a few years old. It's a, it's a it's a dark it's an, another political satire about Stalin's death literally and how the delusion of communism works as well as the life and death danger that you have living under totalitarianism all his leaders are jockeying to keep themselves alive when Stalin dies because who's going to get killed in the next purge is the whole question right and and that you know like wow that's that's a really uh, gripping um, uh, political thing, you know, but also there's a movie that was out um, that I would recommend that was out recently. And it, it, this is where I want to sort of give the qualification of just because wokeness is itself a racist ideology doesn't mean that there isn't racism and doesn't mean that we shouldn't make movies about racism, right. Or whatever, or marginalized minorities. It's just why, you know, what's the real message that you're giving? And and one example that is perfectly politically correct and woke it, technically uh, is King Richard, you know, the true story of the, uh, the Williams sisters, you know, with um, Will Smith in it. And, and this is a story that's talking about two black girls and their, and some of the struggles they had with racism, but also it's honest enough to show the violence within the black community. And, and it also it deals with not being a victim. It doesn't promote victimhood and, and, uh, political grievances, but rising up in your own strength and uh, goodness or whatever and achieving and pursuing excellence and, and rising above rather than blaming and, uh, accusing and demonizing the system and making yourself into a victim. And so that that's a good example where on the surface, it's very politically correct, you'd say, but the message of it is very much rooted in a, um, I just think a, a positive um, unifying view of life rather than the divisive, polarizing, you know, demonizing that we are seeing in everything now, not just not just in the extreme issues like pro-life and abortion or, you know, immigration maybe, but like literally down to every single political viewpoint now, it's always 
you know, demonizing of the opponents. And it's just driving this culture into, into violence. And, you know, as we're, as I'm, as we're talking here, people might be thinking like, what does this have to do with your new novel? Get to your new novel. Well, actually it, it has everything to do with the novel crew logic because, um, the, uh, the novel that I wrote was, was also a response, a reaction to our current sociocultural world of violence and the, you know, where does this violence come from? And, you know, my, you know, my personal convictions are that historically speaking, the university is a origin point for a lot of the evils that occur in the world. Why? Because it's in the university that philosophies and worldviews are worked out, uh, but it's removed from normal everyday reality at first, obviously, and, and it's philosophizing and they're debating and they're talking amongst themselves. And oftentimes you get this esoteric, you know, whatever. The, ac- the academy can be very removed from reality. However, what happens in the academy? Well, those those professors then teach students and students are the young people of the next generation and the young people, their brains are literally not as developed, but also they are, they are more manipulated, easily manipulated because they, they don't have the development and the maturity. And so they, they take this philosophy that is once academic, they bring it with them as they leave the university. And they, of course they, they're also more emotional they are are more prone to passionate outbreaks, right? So that's why you get all these student protests. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing because if you look at history, student, uh, there's been awake, you know, spiritual awakenings that have, have occurred amongst students and young people, uh, as well as the violence and protests and stuff. So, and then they, they leave and then they obviously get jobs eventually because you have to survive, right? But then they bring that, philosophy with them. And what are we seeing now? We see the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is sort of like the the dominant, you know, uh, that's one good way of summarizing the worldview. That is in, that's captured everything through, through human resources. And, and it's in all the Fortune 500 companies. It's in, it's in all the government organizations, you know, it's in all of education because they took that with them. So that's how you see the process of these ideas filter down into the masses. And so now people are shocked and dealing with like, what, you know, struggling with like, you know, what is going on here? You know, at at universities, students are literally trying to stomp out free speech in a world where we've always assumed free speech is our number one right. And now they're literally arguing for no, no, free speech is not good. We should suppress some speech that we consider hate speech, et cetera. Well, how does that happen? Well, that's how it happens. It filters down in the in in that way. And so I wanted to tell a story about the university and about how ideas have consequences. And now the you know, the university, the higher education has been captured by this woke culture. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to to sort of depict that in a story in a way that would be realistic. So people could see what's the world like there in that university and what does that wokeness look like and how does it, you know, and, and where is it leading in that sense, right? So that's sort of the environment that, that I have the story taking place. But the actual premise of the story is about a serial killer in the woke university. And the idea is that this, this killer is actually a philosophy professor 
who captures university professors and he debates them. And the topic of his debate is his moral right to kill them. So he'll say, okay, if what you say is true about reality, give me one valid reason why I should kill you. Or I'm sorry, (laughs) if what you say is true about reality, give me one valid reason why I should not kill you and I'll let you go. In other words, he's using logic to try to, sh- to, to examine all these various worldviews of these professors, evolutionary biologists, uh, queer theorists, all these, these different professors, and they're the cream of the crop for their intellect, right? And, and he's challenging them to, to give them a valid reason um, not to kill them. And so, um, of course, they're, they're failing miserably. And that's not the only thing that th- there's twists and turns that this guy, has, is do- is, his purpose is more than just that on the surface. Um, he's got a goal himself that I'm not going to reveal, but uh, nevertheless, that's sort of the premise of the story. And I wanted to, I wanted to wrestle with this notion of ideas having consequences, and many things that we think about, or even that we're debating about in the in the in the public square. Even we don't think through, or a lot of people don't think through. Uh, hey, listen, if what you, if we apply what you say, look at what will result, you know? And that's sort of my goal in, in storytelling. And so in one level, on one level, I do have a very, you know, I have a, a, a Christian worldview that I'm bringing to the text. I'm telling a story that, that, that's rooted within that worldview. But even then, my goal was to depict the, the, the university accurately. And even, the people in it that I don't agree with, I wanted to depict them in a way that's realistic and accurate and what they're really like and not demonize them all. Right. And so, um, I literally drew from events that have been occurring in the last five or six years and various university campuses, you know, taking down the Columbus statues, um, you know, uh, stomping out the, um, or getting, um, professors, you know, uh, fired for their views and stuff like that. And this whole gender thing now, you know, the pronouns, all these issues that are going on campus. I wanted to accurately depict that and show that viewpoint, but then also show where it leads and where it leads is not a good end. It's a, it's ultimately a violent end in my art, in my point, in my point of view. Yeah. Well, I have, uh, I mean, I read the book before you published it and, uh, thought it was excellent. And I'm not just saying that because uh, we're friends. In fact, it's precisely because we're friends that I wanted to give you an honest take on the book, because if it were terrible, I would want you to know (laughs) before you published it. Uh, Yes. And I, and, and, and everybody listening, I would, I I honestly would want him to tell me that. (laughs) Uh, And you, you envision it as the first of a series of theological thrillers. Uh, What, what do you mean by, can you, Tell us what you mean by theological thriller as a genre. Yeah, you know, there, here's the thing. I, um, as I was writing, you have to sort of you have to accurately depict to your audience the kind of genre that it is because people are really looking for specific kinds of stories that they like, and they don't like being hoodwinked or they don't like being tricked when you tell them it's this genre, you know. But it's not like say, oh, it's an epic adventure, but it's really a romance. It's more of a romance, and like, well, I don't want a rom-, you know. That's how pe- that's how readers respond. And I sat there and thought, well, this is in a way, this is a, a serial killer story, which is very much in the vein of Silence of the Lambs, absolutely, or the movie Seven, you know. Um, but 
it has a it has a unique take to it. It it is a sort of an it's very intellectual in some senses, you know. And I don't want people to just think that, oh, this is just gonna be like every other, you know, serial killer story or something, but that there's more to it. But at the same token, it's not, you know, it's not really how can I put it? It's not that it's not um yeah, I guess I guess the best way that I could I could 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 describe it was it's a thriller, but what makes it different from the other thrillers? It's theological. It has a kind of a theological edge to it. I was going to call it an intellectual thriller because I do like bringing in philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I felt that even that didn't didn't point as strongly to the context as theology does. So theology tells you, okay, this is an intelligent story, but it also wrestles with, and this is what the series is about, the, the human nature, sin, depravity, and the existence of God. The problem of evil and the existence of God and human nature. Those are universal issues that everyone struggles with, no matter what religious belief you have. And I want to wrestle with that in, in a you know, faithful and honest way. And so this is the first in the series. Now, it's not going to be like Crew Logic Part 2 or anything like that. It'll be completely standalone novels, but they all deal with that sort of, um, you know, in, intelligent use, uh, usage of the thriller medium. So, you know, I love a good entertaining story. And that is a, that is literally a ultimate priority. I will not write a story unless it's entertaining. And I will not write a scene unless it's entertaining. I will delete it. Yet at the same time, I also seek to tell stories that have meaning and purpose. And if you look at all the great, you know, all the great storytellers of history, you know, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, um, sorry to pick just Russians there, but uh, Michael Crichton, you know, they, they, uh, they all have, um, they're all communicating some strong, powerful moral views about the world. And I'm trying to do that as well. Yeah. Did you find it difficult to balance the story in terms of it being both a plot-driven thriller, but also a novel of ideas, which sometimes required your characters to talk about some deep concepts? Yeah, yeah. And that's the biggest problem is there. there's a whole world of people who do love talking about deep concepts and they in, would enjoy it on any level, but then there's a lot of people who don't. And, and so the, the dilemma is always like, can you put those two together? Okay. And I'm a firm believer that you can. In fact, my goal is this. I've always loved philosophy and, and Christian theology. And so it interests me, but I recognize not everybody does is interested by that stuff, but I do believe it's important. And so you think, well, then how can I make it, how can I make philosophy more interesting to people who aren't as interested in it. Well, you combine it with something like a thriller, you know, and a serial killer story. And that might at least give it context that makes it more interesting to them and keeps them in the story. It's, it's not unlike, um, I use this, (laughs) I use this example because I just, it's my, one of my favorite movies of all time. So it, there's a movie that combines two completely opposite genres that would never fit together and and in fact, I don't know if it hurts it or not uh, in terms of actual audience, but I love Jane Austen movies, right? And and Jane Austen stories, you know, most a lot of men wouldn't tend to like that, right? It's romance and all this kind of stuff. But I, as a man, I also love zombie stories. You know what I mean? And of course, women don't tend to like zombie stories as much. You know, the blood and gore and stuff. So <laughs> this person mashed up, the, this author mashed up the two genres and came up with the book, 
Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And then it became a movie. And it's not one of my favorite movies because I love Jane Austen and it, it captures Jane Austen in a genuine way. And it also captures zombie stories in a genuine way. And I absolutely love it, you know? And so my, that's what my hope is, is that, that maybe I can make th- people who love thrillers become a, at least learn and, and, and be introduced to that world of ideas a little bit more, the, the ideas of the intellect and philosophy, and then hopefully make uh, people who are interested in philosophy, give them a little bit of entertaining context that they could uh, think through their ideas in more than just a logical argument, but to see them worked out into in human life and drama. Because to me, that's the most powerful impact. Storytelling is the most powerful means to impact a life with ideas. And, 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 and storytelling is about ideas and it's just, you know, uh, a lot of people don't, maybe, maybe, maybe don't, they don't know that. Maybe they just think it's entertainment and they don't realize that. No, no, we storytellers, the very story structure that we follow of re- redemption of the protagonist, et cetera, is in fact a conversion story or, it, you know, conversion is the word that means, or redemption. It's the word that means something you see, something is wrong with a person's life the way they see the world or, or their, their behavior in some way. And as they journey through their story, they learn something more about themselves, what they need to change, how they need to be a better person. And, and, and that's what most stories are all about. And that really is a way of seeing the world, which is a worldview. So uh, whether you like it or not, or, you know, whether you believe it or not, stories, we storytellers are influencing you with our worldviews. It's just a matter of some do it better than others. And some do it more blatantly than others. And sometimes it's propaganda, you know, Um, sometimes it isn't, you know. The Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that he believed that everything terrible that had happened to his country, Russia, uh, after the 1917 communist revolution was because man had forgotten God. And I think we've reached the point now where man is actively trying to replace God, uh, which isn't going to end well. But uh, the villain of your novel, Charles Cullen, states right there in the prologue that he is God. Is he a sort of, in this way, is he a sort of reflection of our culture, generally speaking, and that mankind is trying to make a God of itself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, all the characters in my story I are are rooted in a uh, really cultural cultural views that I see out there as well as people. Like for instance, yeah, that serial killer, he does represent the person who, who um, is, is m- more self-aware of the fact that, okay, I, you know, w- what is, what is reality going to be like without a God? Right. But the other characters in the story as well, for instance, I have the psychologist who's tracking him down his name's Joseph Callender. He's a psychologist who who had been involved in in uh, helping uh, assess his mental capacity in, when he was first caught, when the killer was first caught and put on trial, and now he's escaped, right? So anyway, this psych- psychology professor has been called in to help the cop track him down, and the professor is actually um, kind of like a Jordan Peterson guy, you know, and 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 that's Jordan Peterson represents. I think another sort of like um, movement of people who 
uh, in- intellectuals who are defending Western civilization and even defending the Judeo-Christian foundation of Western civilization, while not necessarily themselves being Christian. And I find that very intriguing. And some of them are the, I had the most utmost respect, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, uh, Tom Holland. You know, these guys are not necessarily Christians, but they're defending it. And that is an extremely interesting to me. And I, I've, I've actually thought, what, what would that be like? I, I, I'm not even sure. I wanted to understand that. And so I, part of me telling the story was to, to go through that, that journey of that character. You know, so Callinger is like he's, he's supporting Western civilization and he's getting, you know, railed for it. But he doesn't really have a faith in God. He's actually got a Jewish background, but he doesn't have a faith in God. But he does recognize that culture does need to be founded on these religious values to some, to some extent. But yet at the same time, he's being challenged with that. And, um, and, if, and the killer also is starting to force him to look at his own soul and um, face his own failures and contradictions, shall we say, right? So there's, there's a character like that. And then there's another main character in the story that brings another storyline that, that I, I wanted to just let people know about, um, which is another sort of phenomenon that's occurring there's a lot of uh, what we call Christian deconstruction or Christian deconversion that's going on today. And that's basically, usually it's celebrities that we hear about who've lost their Christian faith and they're going on podcasts now and they're talking about it, Christian musicians and all this kind of stuff, pastors and stuff. And it's, look, it's nothing new because, you know, ever since the universities, we've had Christians going to college and losing their faith. So that's not new, but but I think because of the podcast nature, there's a lot more voices out there that we're hearing about it. It's a phenomenon. And, um, and I, wanted to, I wanted to deal with that. I wanted to say, yeah, what, what is that? And what's going on? And what's the, what's the draw? So I have a character who's Danny Rains, who is an evangelical Christian, freshman, first year college student. And, but, you know, he's a good kid and he's not a fundamentalist. He's not a, he's not a, a cliche or a stereotype of a Christian. He's just a typical Christian who hasn't really been equipped with a real uh, legitimate, strong enough faith to be able to counter or even, even honestly deal with the skepticism of the university. And that's part of the thing that starts to, to, to crush and hurt his faith and then how he's drawn into social justice because a lot of Christians have been drawn into that stuff. And I wanted to wrestle with that as well, because I think a lot of people are going through that journey. And I wanted to say, well, what's that like? Where's it coming from? And where is it leading to? Because unfortunately, I would say these Christians who are uh, been suckered into the woke movement um, you know, through guilt manipulation, basically, you know, they're, you know, because Christians are compassionate and they want to be loving to people. So, uh, wokeness really manipulates guilt in order to, to draw people in. And, um, uh, and they think that they think that, uh, this is, this is for the good, but they don't realize they're being used. They don't realize that at the end of the day, um, the shall we say the intentions for those Christians uh, by the woke movement is not a happy one. <laughs> it's like the per- person who's hoping that well, by the you know, I'm 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 behind all these other people being fed to the crocodile, and and so hopefully a crocodile will be full by the time I get to it. You know, it's like no, no, he won't be. He's going to eat you too, type of thing. You know, 
So yeah, that, so I wanted to sort of, re- that, and that's another reason why I say theological, because I'm also dealing openly with religious themes and Christians and stuff like that. And look, that's as much a part of the world as any other part. You know, you can tell a story about blacks in the inner city, or you could tell a story about uh, Western cowboys in Texas. You know, there's all kinds of cultures out there of different kinds of people and and the world that they exist in. And I think Christians are one of them. So technically this is not a Christian novel. There's a lot of, there's violence in it. There's bad, there's swearing, uh, you know, excessive language because that's, I want to depict the world realistically how it is. Right. And, and I don't have any desire to do a cliche Christian storytelling, you know, where people got to get saved and all this kind of stuff. I want to, I want to, wrestle with the the real world and the issues of God and faith, but I want to do so honestly. And, and, and so my character, you know, Danny, listen, he, he, you know, he's got issues that a lot of Christians struggle with, such as pornography. That's one of the, one of the things that he struggles with, even as a Christian. So I want to deal, I deal honestly with all viewpoints, um, including, inc- uh, including the weaknesses of those who I might agree with. Right. So yeah, that's, that that's that was my goal. Yeah, I think the uh, character arc of this character Danny in the novel was one of the most convincing and interesting parts of the book. The way he was naively seduced into this cult of social justice activism on campus. Uh, you know, there's so many pernicious ideas that are being inculcated in college students today that it's almost as if you you can't go to college anymore to explore who you are. You really need to know who you are and what you believe and be firm in your convictions before you even get there or you won't survive the brainwashing. Uh, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's exactly right. And that ties in also with the, the premise of the novel, which is, you know, can you defend your beliefs if your life depended on it? <laughs> We've reached the point where uh, I guess people need to be able to ask themselves that question and and answer it because uh, the world will tear you apart if you haven't settled it. Well, you know, here's 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 another element of the found, uh, the origin of the story and why it was so powerful. I believe that the pr- problem of evil and the existence of God is a universal issue. I think it's one of the most important issues of life. Period. And I still wrestle with it to to this day as a Christian. You know, and the basic notion is, you know, if you put it in philosophical terms, like Hume might say, David Hume, you know, um, you know, is if if God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil? Right? Because if He's all loving, He'd want to get rid of evil, <laughs> and if it was all powerful, He would get rid of evil. But if there's evil, then God's an impotent or or cruel. So this is obviously not a God you want to be with, that kind of a thing. That's the argument. And, you know, there is legitimacy to that. Um, technically, it's not a logical argument because there is no logical problem with the, with the notion that, well, if the creator of the universe has a morally sufficient reason and he does not tell us for evil, uh, then that's, a logic, that's logically acceptable. But it's not psychologically acceptable. So in other words, people don't like that, that, that fact. Um, but also on an emotional level and a human level, I, I do, as I get older in life, I, I'm becoming more aware of suffering and of the evil in this world and how unfair it is and how, you know, unjust it is. Right. And, and I think that anybody who has a sense of compassion does struggle with that and wonder about it and wrestle with it. And I wanted to, um, and, and, and unfortunately, the logical problem, like I say, I don't think there is a logical problem. It's just people don't like the answers. Uh, you know, they don't like that answer. It's like God has a morally sufficient reason. 
for evil. Well, that's not acceptable to me. Well, yeah, of course you want to be God, right? So it's like, if you don't accept God on his terms, you're not going to like his answer. But here's the thing. Many years ago, I, I had, I love Christian apologetics and I love this one apologist. His name was, um, was Walter Martin. And he was like back in the sixties and seventies. And I remember listening to a tape and, um, the tape was of him on a, a, a Long John Nebel show. And he was talking about his frustration talking to an atheist. He, he was saying, you know, it's time to tell this atheist, you have no foundation for morality. You know, if atheism is true, there's no more, there's no morality. And he said, yes, there is. I believe murder's wrong. He couldn't, un- he, the atheist is so blinded that they often do not realize that the things they assume are contradictory to their own belief system. They don't think about their thinking. And so he's trying to get him to see this. And he, he got so frustrated. He finally says, okay, look, it's 1940s. And I'm a Nazi with a gun pointing at your head. You're a Jew. Give me one reason why I shouldn't shoot you, you know? And, uh, and of course he couldn't do it. And I, that never, that never left my mind. That haunted me for years because I feel it does embody in a emotional, human, dramatic way um, the real problem of evil. And that is this, the real problem of evil is the person who does not believe in God, because if there is no God, there's no such thing as evil. Evil is of course, an objective transcendent standard of right and wrong or good and bad. Right. And, and that something is not, and when we say something is evil, we mean, we mean that it, it's wrong. It's immoral, regardless of what anyone may think or feel. That's obviously what makes it evil, because otherwise, if it's just subjective feelings, then, you know, you could go down the, the, the pathway of all these thoughts, all these secular thoughts. And in the end, if there's no God, there is no such thing as evil. So therefore, why are you accusing God of anything? Why, why would you say, well, why is there evil if there's a God? Well, you don't even have a basis for evil, you know? So really, the, the true problem of evil is for the atheist. Because he believes that there's right and wrong, uh, or he believes that it's all relative, but of course, he doesn't want to be treated as if there is no right and wrong, right? And so consequently, um, that challenging the person to face up to, okay, look, if you if you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna die if 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 you don't tell me a good reason not to kill you, you know, that was my way of sort of embodying that that story version of the problem of the, of evil and the existence of God and how the atheist in a way is the one that has the real problem. I'm going to quote Solzhenitsyn again, uh, who said that the line between good and evil runs straight through the center of every human heart. Uh, You think there's the potential for a a Charles Cullen in each of us? Yeah. Yeah, there really is. Um, As a matter of fact, one of the little, this is just an Easter egg and uh and by the way in the the christian as well like the christian has you know the, the the christian worldview it is basically that you know original sin or total depravity which means that all of us are stained with sin we're born evil we're born bad man's nature human nature is essentially bad not good the humanist believes human nature is bad good and it's systems that are bad, right? But no, the Christian says the individual is essentially bad. And so that's why we need to be redeemed. But, but that essential badness does mean that, yeah, so uh, that which is in, in, in the serial killer is, is within me too. I deserve the same judgment of God as a serial killer. So one of the, one of the things I did in this story was 
uh, and this is this is nothing more than a sort of just a creative license. You know, I just did it because I th- I thought it would be interesting to to express this theme on a deeper level, and that was all the ca- all the fictional characters in my story, all their names are actually names of real serial killers in history, even the good guys. So, uh, and of course, all that, all that is just to say that, yeah, we're, we're all like serial killers before God, you know what I mean? But I, obviously I didn't pick serial killer names that we would recognize. Some people might, who, who know, like some people might know there, there are some names that are a little bit more knowable, but obviously I didn't do Gary or Gary. I I didn't do Jeffrey Dahmer or, you know, and I didn't, didn't do John Wayne Gacy, the obvious ones. Right. So, because I'm not making any kind of point other than I'm just sort of, uh, embodying my theme on every level that I can, right? And then one of the other components is um, just for fun, all the the names of the buildings on campus. You know, how campus have has campus buildings have names. I named them after actual suspects of Jack the Ripper. So, and and there's no specific one that is more. I don't know who Jack the Ripper was. So I just I took names that were interesting and that worked with the story, you know. And the same thing with the story of the uh, the names of the serial killers. There's no there's no agenda behind that. I just found names that worked the best for the story, right? So that was just one way of sort of embodying on every level I can this notion of yeah, the problem of evil is really in man, not in God. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of uh, heavy ideas associated with the novel, but there's also what I would like to point out, a very unexpected strain of humor that runs throughout the novel. I found a few points that were actually laugh out loud funny because wokeness, the reality of wokeness is so ludicrous that it's like a parody of itself. Do you think wokeness has sort of peaked and is beginning to lose ground as some conservatives think, or uh, or is it an ideology that's going to continue to dominate the culture? Yeah, I don't know, Mark. It's a good question. I do believe it has captured all the institutions. So once you do that, no matter how absurd and wicked an idea may be, it, if you're if the people in control believe it, it you know they're going to enforce it. They're going to seek to enforce it. And um, and so since all the institutions are, I do believe they're all captured by this ideology. I do believe it continuing on at least for a while. Um, you know, but will it, so, so here's the interesting thing about it. Like, you know, and a lot of, a lot of the, um, a lot of the elements of wokeness or or what's another way to describe it philosophically. And I think part of its origin is in postmodernism, right? So this is where, you know, the woke thing would be like, you know, trans ideology, right? And what is trans ideology? It's the denial of biological reality, right? It's literally a denial of reality and it denies science. And so there's a sense in which, um, in which, you know, I've, as a conservative, I've always believed that ideas can only last so long and then they will crash into the brick wall of reality that, you know, you, you can't deny reality for, for very long. And, you know, we hear phrases like go woke, go broke. And, and that does occur sometimes, but a lot of times it doesn't, like I said, like Barbie movie, you know? So, so, so going woke doesn't always mean you go broke going woke. will, um, you know, I think Nike had a big dip when they went woke and w- went racist with that Colin Ka- Kaepernick. Uh, but then if you looked at them, you know, the, a year later, the money went back up. So people are, people are stupid. 
in general, the mobs and people are stupid and they also forget everything. They're just, uh, we're creatures of comfort. So we don't want to suffer. We don't want to do without our products. We don't want to do without Disney because we love Disney. So we'll still buy the Disney channel, even though it's, it's preaching hatred to all of our values. Right. Um, and that's, that's the sad thing is we don't respond like we ought to, but, but nevertheless, I used to believe that reality would stop bad ideas. And I, I still have a a general belief of that. You know, maybe that's the natural law part of me, but I've seen how it's not the case. Sometimes if you have a worldview, like I said, there's some of the origin of wokeness comes from postmodernism. You know, the, the Frankfurt school that came to America from overseas and, and in the 60s, it's, it began there. And yeah, they're neo-Marxists, they're cultural Marxists, they're, you know, but but they also have a, a basis in postmodernism. And postmodernism does, okay, it doesn't deny reality technically. It actually denies the ability to know reality. So what it, reality is irrelevant. The only, the only thing we have is, is different perspectives of reality and the ways in which we can control the, the way people think about reality is through language. So that's why they're all focused on properly changing language so that it reflects their worldview of reality, um, even though it denies reality. This, which is why they're, yeah, a, a, a trans woman is a woman, right? And, and they're, they're forcing the language to force us to accept the opposite of reality. And there's a side of me that thinks like, yeah, that, that really, you can't deny science for very long, but there, so far they're, they're doing it, you know, and, and hopefully I pray reality may, may stop it. But when you have a worldview that no longer cares about reality, see, at least, you know, a hundred years ago, the atheists or not even a hundred years ago, like, let's just say the, the enlightenment, right? The atheists of the enlightenment who hated God and want to get rid of him. It's a superstition. They still believe there was reality. But now the postmodernists don't believe reality is knowable. It's something we socially construct. So if you believe in the social construction of reality, it doesn't matter what reality really is. And if anyone's going to get, if anyone's going to be able to, to, to continue that on successfully, it's going to be that worldview. Now the question then becomes, okay, so then what about all the people who are becoming, you know, who are the, the ultimately the slaves of this or, or the, the, um, the sufferers of the consequences of this, right? That's, I guess that's where our only hope is, is that's why I believe that the transformation of the individual through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only beginning to protect us against that. And the more people that we can uh, persuade, convince, and convert to become Christians, then they will, their unreality will not, will not control us because we do believe in reality. You know what I mean? And, and so can, can that extend beyond the personal individual conversions and, and take social, you know, grab hold of society? I don't know. I, I honestly, it, it, it's going to last longer than I had thought it was. Go- it's already lasted longer than I thought it would. So I just don't know other than obviously we should continue to fight it and continue to fight for reality and fight for science and such, you know. Um, yeah, I think but, I think you're probably using the word reality to uh, also mean truth with a capital T, and that's what 
postmodernism really assaults is is this there is no universal truth there's only my truth and your truth and and his or her or zier's truth uh, and when you do that then you've destroyed the notion of truth altogether and the only thing that matters is your own i suppose individual uh perspective or worldview what what can each of us do to ensure that the true and the good and the beautiful prevail you know yeah, well, I would say probably this is where you get more uh, maybe activist-oriented. As as a storyteller, I myself, my whole life is is geared towards I want to communicate. I want to find the truth and communicate that truth to the world to help people find the truth. Um, but what about those people who are not doing things like you and I do? Which you know we're communicating, we're communicators, and so uh, we believe in speaking the truth is in a way, the most powerful means of fighting lies, <laughs> speaking truth to power, speaking truth to lies. Absolutely. That's the number one. So the number one thing is, is to, to, uh, don't, don't go along with it. Find ways to graciously as much as possible. So for instance, when, you know, when people are trying to force you to use pronouns, it isn't compassionate to use pronouns. It's actually, um, anti-compassionate because you're, you're actually promoting mental illness and delusion that will lead to ultimately to self-violence and violence against others. So, um, so, so it's speaking the truth and saying, well, look, I love you. I accept you. Uh, but, um, I'm not going to call, I'm not going to use pronouns that are false of you. And, um, rather than cowering and just going along, because people just tend to go along because they don't want to get, they don't want to suffer. People don't want to suffer, but also it, it, it goes to these various companies and various products that, that, um, as they seek to enforce this, this racist agenda on us, um, we need to stand up and, and fight it and stop buying some of their products. Now, it's it's not possible universally because almost every company now, you know, is rooted in it. But certainly the companies that go out of their way to become extreme about it, like the targets, right? And 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 there have been boycotts, so to speak, you know, of the Bud Light, right? The Bud Light thing, where although I don't think I, I don't know that that was actually anything of an activist thing. It was just a lot of those Bud Light drinkers. It's just like they really aren't like that. So it's like I ain't going to drink that crap. Or you know, I'm, I ain't going to drink that that uh, trans crap along with it, you know that kind of thing. But but we need to be more activist oriented as much as we can. And I I realize not you can't do it with everything, but we can focus on those that are the most. Uh, I, I wish we could get more uh, more organized, like the left does. You know, where they 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 pick one target and then they pile on it. And, and destroy it. And that's, that's how they get rid of these things one by one. And they pick the strongest targets. Like this is why everyone who's, who's speaking the truth powerfully, whether it's Tucker Carlson or Russell Brand, all of them are being attacked by slander and such. Right. And, uh, that's the, that's the tactic. I'm not saying that that's what we should do, but we should do that righteously in terms of various companies as they go more woke or whatever. Uh, maybe, maybe, you sh maybe you should get rid of your Disney uh, channel. Uh, yeah, I, but, but I got kids. I realize how tough and hard that could be. But if we don't, if we don't take a stand and to against these, then it's going to just keep coming and, and it won't stop at all. And then lastly, I would also say to be more politically involved. Most people are not politically involved and, 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 and I would say on a, and a, at least on a local level, 
you know, even in my own town here, I realize like how many people just don't vote or how many people don't care. And the, it's the left that then takes control of all those. And then we wonder, why are they imposing all this stuff on us, you know? And so you need to become more politically involved. And I, I know that people hate that because I hate it. I don't like politics, but I've forced myself to get more involved in some of these, find something that you can be a part of. I think a good example of this is, you know, it, people don't tend to respond until it actually hurts them personally. And that's what's so sad. They don't care about it happening to other people's kids, but when it happens to theirs, then they speak up. Okay. But nonetheless, we've had those cases, right? Like where the, uh, the parents of students would come to the school boards and start putting their foot down, right? Um, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Do more of that kind of thing and stop letting people just do what they want to do. Get involved in all these things. You know, not I'm not talking, even talking about the national elections or anything like that. I'm just talking about local school boards, local governing, you know, all this kind of stuff. People need to to be more active because that's where they're taking all the control away, and we have no one to blame but ourselves and our own inactivity. When all of a sudden we are now having to follow all these rules and regulations that have been d done by the people over us because we didn't step in and, and do it ourselves. Yeah, boy, that that is almost point for point what I tell people um, when they say, what can we do about this stuff? First of all, first and foremost, as you said, we have to tell the truth, even at the risk of persecution. And that's becoming a very real possibility and a very real threat. But it really, it really has to begin with each person refusing to be coerced into accepting or going along with the lies. You've got to speak the truth. What are you working on now? Can you tell us that? Oh, well, it, just marketing the release of Crewlogic. That, that goes on for a month or more after you release it, for sure. But, but I, I'm always thinking and, and working towards the next novel, absolutely. So now I have two novels I'm working on. The next Chronicles of the Watcher novel, which I... I and the next theological um, uh, thriller novel, but at this point, it's still too early for me to to talk about it. So I'll I'll let you know, you know, later on in the year, and you can have me on when I'm or when I'm when I'm getting close. I'll let you know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, that's no, that's great. What is the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing? Um, are you much of a social media guy? Yeah, you know, honestly, I'm not big social media. I I I don't have a lot of involvement, but I do post on my Facebook page and Twitter page, whenever I have an interview or anything related to my work, like I don't get involved in political discussions and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but I do post things that I'm doing related to my work. And so, yeah, you know, if you keep up with me on Facebook, you'll, you'll get, you'll get the latest of things I'm writing and talking about. And um, Gadawa.com is my website, and I have a lot of great, cool stuff there. I wanted to make a website that's interesting to people, not some boring author. But all my books, um, including Crewlogic, are available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook on Amazon exclusively. So go to Amazon, and you'll you'll be able to find Crewlogic. And uh, and plus, you know, Amazon has a great in-depth in descriptions of, of all my books and series and stuff. So you can, you don't even have to go to getout.com. Just go, go to Amazon. You'll get all the information you can, you want about um, looking into what books might you be interested in reading of mine. Brian Kadawa, thank you very much for your time and insights today. Thanks for coming on the Right Take podcast. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Please keep up the great work, my friend. Thank you. You too. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Just another reminder to subscribe to The Right Take so you don't miss any of the crucial conversations we are having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. It really helps. Thanks, and be seeing you.
The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.